Welcome to True Crime Mysteries, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart of the world's most gripping true crime stories. I'm your host, Megan, and I've spent years researching, investigating, and seeking the truth in dark corners where most people dare not look. Each week, we'll delve into a new case, peeling back layers of mystery, law, and human behavior. Together, we'll explore the intricate webs woven by those who break society's most sacred laws. We'll cover cold cases, missing persons, and recently uncovered serial killers, and instances where DNA has identified a killer. Join us as we journey back in the past, bring decade-old cases to life, and explore the dark, tragic, and inexplicable. And maybe find a light of justice at the end of the tunnel. This is True Crime Mysteries. In the history of criminology, some mysteries refuse to fade away with time. For over three decades, a veil of uncertainty has shrouded a set of chilling cases, leaving families, investigators, and the public haunted by unanswered questions. These three decades-old cold cases serve as eerie reminders of the enduring power of unsolved mysteries. Let's get into it. Case number three, Robert Merle Harrod. By 2009, 81-year-old Robert Merle Harrod was looking to take life at a slower pace. He had recently lost his beloved wife, Georgia, after 50 beautiful years of marriage and was preparing for his own inevitability. Whilst Robert drove a modest 1997 gold Toyota Camry, Robert's finances were anything but humble. Some articles speculate he was worth around $5 million thanks to savvy investments and assets. Continuing the modest theme, Robert opted to live at 522 Carnation Drive in Plasencia, California, a three-bed, three-bath home perfect for raising a family. However, of course, by 2009, all of Robert's children were now adults and had families of their own. Whilst Robert's life had been filled with sorrow, better days were around the corner. Back in 1950, Robert had met and gotten engaged to a woman named Frontel Heater. The two were wrapped in young love's embrace, but unfortunately, they didn't get their fairy tale ending. Shortly after getting engaged, Robert joined the military, and the two went their separate ways. Robert ended up marrying Georgia, and Frontel also married someone else. However, even after 60 years, the two couldn't stop thinking about each other. After the pair's spouses had passed, and thanks to the internet and modern technology, Robert was able to connect with his long-lost love, and the spark between the two was undeniable. Facing the fact that neither of them was getting any younger, they threw caution to the wind and married on June 29, 2009, only six days after they met in person for the first time in decades. What should be a happy reunion is marked by tears. A 75-year-old newlywed, Fontel Herod, is greeted by her stepdaughters in Placentia after flying in from Kansas. But her new husband, Robert, is not here to welcome her. The 81-year-old missing since Monday. Fontel last talked with him on the weekend. He was in very good spirits. We, we've been in about 59 years. And he gave me this in 1950 when he went to the Korean War. And uh, we were just getting started again. No, he would not have left on his own. 
The couple first got engaged in 1950. They lost track of each other when Robert was serving in the Marines. They recently reunited after nearly 60 years and got married within days of seeing each other. Hopefully, he will show up. We're we're anticipating he'll show up. You know, because he knows she's coming in, and he was looking so forward to this. We haven't seen any activity on his、uh, bank account, on his credit cards. They might have had concerns, possibly about how quickly that he married Fontel. If that was a concern of his that he got to thinking about,、uh, we don't know any about anything、uh, financial implications or anything else that was going on on in the family at this moment that he would be concerned about. Dad, if you're watching, come home. We're here. We love you, and your wife is waiting for you. And I love you, Dad. Fentel lived in Missouri at the time of their union, and she had arranged to move in with her new husband. In July, Robert and his children began doing up the house and preparing for Fentel's arrival. Robert glowed to his housekeeper about his wife's arrival, and nothing seemed amiss in his life. On the morning of July twenty seventh, two thousand nine, Robert's son in law arrived at five twenty two Carnation Drive to help Robert with the house. After a cup of coffee and a little chat, game planning the tasks ahead, Robert's son-in-law left for Home Depot to grab supplies between 11 a.m. and 12 p.m. For a few hours, son-in-law milled around Home Depot, grabbing the necessary supplies and tools for the jobs at hand. At around 1 p.m., or some sources report closer to 2:30 p.m., the son-in-law returned to Carnation Drive, only to find it empty and locked. Robert's housekeeper was also sitting in her car out front, waiting to be let inside. She explained that Robert usually left a hidden key if he was going to go out, but this time there was no key present. The front door was locked, and Robert wasn't responding. Luckily, the son-in-law had a key and were able to get the pair in. The housekeeper finished her duties, noting that Robert's bed seemed to be in a state of disarray, something she hadn't seen before. Robert's time in the military had drilled in the necessity for a made bed. Even at eighty, it was something he did daily. Nevertheless, she cleaned and left the home that evening. Robert's son-in-law desperately tried to find Robert in the home, fearing that he'd had an accident or a fall. But the house was silent. Robert wasn't responding to his calls, and that is when he rang his wife, Robert's daughter. Eventually, the rest of the family was filled in on the situation, and the Placentia police arrived at Carnation Drive by nightfall. Bizarrely, Robert had apparently left with his wallet and keys, but hadn't taken his beloved gold Toyota Camry or his glasses. His children also mentioned that Robert had bad knees and wasn't able to walk long distances. He also couldn't see a few feet in front of him without his glasses, so it seemed unlikely that he'd just walk out of the house. There are some reports that on the night before Robert disappeared, there was a heated argument between him and his daughter over her mother's estate and about what she was set to receive. Although this can't be verified, Robert had planned to put Fentel's name on some of his assets that made up his five million dollar estate. When law enforcement learned this information, their ears immediately pricked up. Through further digging, they discovered that the transfer of assets had yet to occur, and Robert had disappeared before he had the chance. A week after their father's disappearance on August seventh, two thousand nine, two of his children filed for conservatorship, which would allow them to seize control of their father's assets. 
They would later tell law enforcement that they wanted the control to maintain his home, pay his bills, and gather reward money. According to reports, Fentel was staunchly against the conservatorship contesting the application in court, and she continued her plan to move into 522 Carnation Drive. After she moved in, she changed the locks on the house. A protracted legal battle ensued between Fentel and Robert's children. By 2014, the courts declared Robert deceased and passed control of his estate over to his children. Fontel was subsequently evicted from the home and is now said to be living in Kansas. A bulk of the attention was focused on Robert's money. But where was Robert? And in another bizarre twist, Robert's barber was named as a possible suspect by the Placentia Police Department. His barber, who was a woman several years his junior, had once been Robert's girlfriend or in some sort of romantic relationship. Apparently throughout their relationship, Robert had lent her over $86,000. The Placentia police naturally looked at her and her husband as suspects, although they claimed that the money had been repaid before Robert's disappearance. The only other suspects in Robert's case are his son-in-law and housekeeper. With differing reports on how long his son-in-law was gone, it's possible he may have had time to attack Robert and dump his body somewhere remote. CCTV footage and receipts prove he did go to Home Depot that day, but it doesn't appear that anyone was able to vouch for what time he returned to 522 Carnation Drive. The Placentia police did look into the son-in-law and barber, although neither of them nor anyone in Robert's family has been officially named as a suspect. In 2019, the case was revitalized 10 years after Robert's disappearance when it was announced that two people had been arrested in connection with Robert's disappearance and now presumed murder. The pair were eventually released without being charged, and their identities were never made public. Many believe that the barber and her husband were the ones held by police, but no entity has ever confirmed this. The only other conclusion left in Robert's case is that Robert was attacked in his home by a stranger, although this seems unlikely. There have never been any reports that anything valuable was taken from the home. There was no blood or sign of struggle in the home other than the unmade bed. Moreover, the neighbors did not report hearing a disturbance, and despite his age, Robert was not a frail man. The other conclusion is that Robert wandered off. His family did tell investigators that they believed he was in early stages of dementia or Alzheimer's. He had begun forgetting things like phone numbers and addresses, although this could be chalked up to old age. Did Robert wander off? Was he attacked by a stranger who bizarrely had no interest in his valuables? Was he attacked by someone he trusted, perhaps even loved? Robert Merle Harrod is described as a white male with gray hair, blue eyes, 5 foot 11, and 140 to 170 pounds. Robert is bald on top with short, thin hair around the sides. He usually wears glasses, but these were left behind. He was last seen wearing white shorts, a white v-neck undershirt, white knee socks, a white belt, a white hat, white Reebok sneakers, a plain gold wedding band, and possibly a Masonic ring with a red stone. Anyone with information is asked to contact the Placentia Police Department at 714-993-8164, quoting case number 06-3263. Case number 2, Craig King, 
September 21, 1982 started like any other for loggers working on land near Highway 25 near Ridgeland, Barron County, Wisconsin. Part of the adjacent land was private property, but that afternoon, one of the loggers crossed the threshold and risked trespassing. While assessing the situation, trying to ascertain what property he was on, around 100 yards from the tree line, the logger spotted a small mound of clothing. The clothing struck him as odd, as the area was private land and mostly deserted. It wasn't near any roads or junctions, and it gave him an uneasy feeling. The logger got the attention of co-workers, and the group approached the clothing together. As they drew nearer to the clothes, their hearts sank. It wasn't just a pile of clothing. A skeleton lay inside them, and with the skull being several feet away. The men ran back to their vans and called the Barron County Sheriff's Department, who in turn called the medical examiner to the scene. Once the remains were located and photographed, they were sent to the medical examiner's office, who, in conjunction with local forensic anthropologists, started their investigation. The bones were categorized and counted, and the investigation could begin. It didn't take long for the medical examiner and the anthropologist to determine that the remains belonged to what they believed was a white male aged 18 to 24, with brown hair, 5'7 to 5'9, and 180 to 195 pounds. His remains were entirely skeletal, and it's estimated that he'd been out and exposed to the elements since May or April of that year, possibly earlier. Disturbingly, the man had met a violent end, with the medical examiner finding three puncture wounds to the chest, so deep that they left marks on the thoracic vertebra. Investigators couldn't discern whether the man had met his end in the woods or whether he'd been dumped there after the fact. With few pieces of evidence to work with, investigators turned to their next clue, the clothing. The man was found wearing blue Sears brand jeans in a size 38 waist, a long sleeve cotton western style plaid shirt with pearl buttons, a denim jacket, Maverick brand white underwear, white athletic socks with a blue trim, and size 10 blue tennis shoes with white stripes. Investigators found corresponding cut marks on the man's shirt and jacket to where he had been stabbed. The man didn't have a wallet with him, and it doesn't appear that the clothes held any names or labels or clues to his identity. But investigators were not done with his bones. In fact, they had a story of their own to tell. According to the Doe Network, the Barron County John Doe, as he'd come to be known, had a surgically repaired left knee with a screw and staple in his tibia. The screws and staples had serial numbers on them, but the manufacturer couldn't trace them to a specific hospital. The Doe Network also noted something very interesting. In their reports, they wrote, quote, the procedure would have required a sophisticated hospital, an extended hospitalization, and a long recovery period, six months to a year. This points to the young man coming from a comfortable, middle-class, perhaps very affluent family, as they would have been able to provide him with the money for the procedure and recovery. Despite all of this information and extensive searches in dental records and hospital records, no one came forward to claim him leading him to be dubbed the Barron County John Doe, 
With so much medical information in this case, investigators found it hard to believe that it would go unsolved for so long, but it did for 38 years. In 2019, a new breath of life was given to the case when the Barron County Sheriff's Office contacted the DNA Doe Project, a nonprofit organization specializing in unidentified human remains. By December 2019, the DNA Doe Project had uncovered their victim's identity. Shortly after, the Barron County Sheriff's Office collected DNA from the victim's family to confirm the match. In early 2020, the Barron County Sheriff's Office was finally ready to announce that the 1982 Barron County John Doe was Craig Patrick King. He would have been 20 or 21 years old at the time of his death. Craig was born in 1961 in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, and graduated the White Bear Lake High School in 1979. According to Craig's parents, they last saw him in White Bear Lake sometime in 1981. Craig had a documented history of mental illness, and the last time they had seen him, he'd been carrying several thousand dollars of cash with him. White Bear Lake is around 82 miles from Barron County, and it's unclear how he ended up there as he didn't own a car. He was remembered as a well-liked young adult. In school, he'd played hockey and golf. He was an avid athlete and an excellent student in school. His father said that Craig was personable, but feels he must have talked to the wrong people. No one who knew Craig could think of anyone who would want to harm him or why. He had been reported missing, and it's unclear why his missing persons case wasn't connected to the body discovered in 1982. Though his family is relieved to have him home finally, but the manner of Craig's death has caused them a lot of pain. They're now appealing to the public for anyone with information to come forward. Please contact the Barron County Sheriff's Office at 715-537-3106. Case number three, Sherry Dean Bethel. I want to just start out by saying there's a distinct lack of information in this case about missing person Sherry Bethel. In 1972, Sherry Lee Dean married for the first time at 17 years old, but their marriage only lasted until February of 1974. According to the Charlie Project, Sherry married her second husband, whose last name was Taylor, three months after the divorce from her first husband had been finalized, around May or June of 1974. Sherry and her second husband lived in Fort Worth, Texas, and by 1976, the pair had a one-year-old child. This is where Sherry's case takes a strange turn due to a lack of evidence. According to her second husband, Sherry was last seen on July 15, 1976. Her husband reported her missing soon after, telling the Fort Worth Police Department that Sherry had walked out on him and their child, but couldn't provide a reason why. Interestingly, it appears that the husband had filed for divorce exactly one year after he reported her missing. By July 1977, the divorce was finalized, but Sherry was still nowhere to be found. One web sleuth user has suggested that Sherry might be Nipton Jane Doe 778-UFCA. The Nipton Jane Doe was found in May of 1976, although it's possible that Sherry disappeared long before her husband reported her missing. 
When looking at mortuary photographs of the Nipton Jane Doe, a resemblance to Sherry can be seen. The Nipton Jane Doe does fit the general description, but had no signs of prior pregnancies or birth, something that Sherry would have likely displayed. While the similarities between the Nipton Jane Doe and Sherry may seem a lot, it's important to remember that these details are guidelines, and many details have been found to be wrong in the past. The Nipton Jane Doe was found in Nipton, California, 1,200 miles from Fort Worth, Texas. Again, it's not outside the realm of possibility that someone traveled a fair distance to ensure the woman couldn't be identified. We can only speculate and spread awareness in cases like Sherry's, where there's little information and no one to advocate for them. Sherry Bethel, also known as Sherry Dean, her maiden name, or Sherry Taylor, is described as a white female with brown hair and brown eyes, 5'6 and 130 pounds. She was 21 years old at the time of her disappearance. Her husband's full name has never been revealed to the public, and law enforcement hasn't revealed much information about the case. Anyone with information is asked to contact Eric Martinez at the Fort Worth Police Department at 817-392-4442, quoting case number 88397520. Well, folks... We've reached the end of another gripping episode here on True Crime Mysteries. Thank you for joining me as we delve deep into the complexities of today's case. Before we go, let's not forget the human element in these stories. The victims, their families, and sometimes even the perpetrators are all part of a larger societal puzzle that we're trying to understand. While we explore these cases, it's crucial to remember the impact on real lives and communities. If you want to keep up with our weekly investigations, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are captivated by these stories as we are, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Your support helps us bring more unsolved mysteries and untold stories to light. With that being said, stay curious, stay vigilant, and most importantly, stay safe. Until next week, good night.